and welcome to this Over the Farm Gate Policy Special Podcast, brought to you by Farmers Guardian. I'm your host this week, Farmers Guardian Chief Reporter, Abby Kay. Don't forget to stay up to date with all Farmers Guardian's latest podcasts, subscribe through your favourite platform, whether that's Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Acast. This week, we're taking a closer look at the new National Food Strategy, which has been put together by DEFRA non-executive director and co-founder of the Lee restaurant chain, Henry Dimbleby, who we'll be speaking to in just a moment. The strategy has prompted mixed reactions from industry. A recommendation to introduce new salt and sugar taxes and a call for a 30% reduction in meat consumption over the next 10 years have garnered particular criticism. But other proposed measures in the report, such as guaranteeing the farm payments budget until at least 2029 and defining minimum standards for food imports, have been broadly welcomed. Here to talk us through what the strategy means for farmers, we have, as promised, Henry Dimbleby himself. Welcome to the podcast, Henry. Thanks, Abby. One of the recommendations in the strategy, which will be of interest to our listeners, is the call to create a rural land use framework based on the three compartment model. Do you want to explain for our listeners briefly what that model is and why you think it's the right one? Yes. So so when we uh, were looking at the land and at farming, uh, the first thing obviously you realise is that since the um, the the discovery of fossil fuels, We've used the land to do less and less. We used to use it to, to, to do everything, to create all our energy, our clothing, our building materials, our food. Uh, and then everything, almost everything except for food, got replaced by fossil fuels. And we're now in a transition where we have to go back to using the land, the land to harness the sun's energy and produce much more. And in particular, we've realized we need it to sequester carbon and to restore biodiversity as well as uh, to produce food and so we started at the point of sequestering carbon and realized that the the nfu's laudable goal to get to uh, net zero uh, was actually not enough because there is no uh, model of net zero that doesn't require some land that is currently used uh, for, for to, to grow food to sequester carbon because there are other sectors of the economy that are not going to be able to get to net zero. So actually, even more is being asked from land that's currently farmed than uh, than to create net zero just from farming. And what we saw was that you need not a lot of land, about 5% to 8% to be taken out of food production almost entirely to, uh, to grow broadleaf woodland and to uh, restore peatlands. And then the question is, what do you do with the the rest of the land? And we looked at kind of the areas where you had had the maximum potential to restore biodiversity and to sequester carbon. And there's a, there's a, a large overlap of those two benefits in uh, in the uplands and on some of our lower land grasslands. And so we created a vision where you see. Uh, some of that small amount of land taken out for uh, a farming completely. You then see a lot of land uh, being used much more extensively to grow food at uh, lower lower yields and to restore nature and sequester carbon, the kind of thing James Rebanks is doing uh, in his valley with his farming cluster up, up there. And then of the other land, you, you actually still need to have a mix. So if you look at the work that Finch et al. did on biodiversity, we have in this country a lot of uh, a lot of 
species that like to live on farms that that do well on farms and so this kind of idea that some people have of land sparing where you intensify some production and then create a lot of wildland actually isn't the best thing for nature so we say you have you need to have a range of agroecological approaches farms with lower yields but more nature to uh, higher yielding but still sustainable regenerative farms and so you get that three compartment model you get a small amount of land that is semi-natural that is taken out of uh, farming altogether you have um, a compartment which is kind of land sharing which is lower intensity agroecological land and then you have a third compartment which is the higher yielding but still sustainable uh you know regenerative land and that is the three compartmental model so it's not all land sharing it's not all agroecological and it's not land sparing it's not a vision of just very very high intensity land and then wild land and how do you expect these major changes in land use to be driven is there going to be or do you envisage any element of compulsion being involved in that no, I, I don't think you can compel. You know, this is privately owned land. Uh, and nor do I think you, 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 you need to compel. So the government has set out, you know, that it is, uh, you know, the, the environmental land management scheme, as all your listeners will know. Uh, and, and the intention is to use that to, uh, to incentivize behaviors that will create this kind of structure. And what we argue, though, is that there are a few things that need to be the case for that to be successful. First of all, you need to get those payments right. You can't just have, you know, income foregone because you need to make it attractive for farmers to farm in those sort of ways. You know, farm businesses are not philanthropic enterprises, they're businesses. And if you don't get those payments high enough, what will happen is that those farms with the removal of the basic payment, will simply intensify. You'll get the worst possible outcomes. And we argue that in order for to be able to do that, uh, you need to sustain that funding, not just to the end of this parliament, but to the end of next parliament at least. So for another five years after 2024, the total of the 2.4 million that's be, billion, sorry, that's being spent in, in, in England. And then finally, we argue that you need to get your trade deals right. So uh, we point out, you know, we go back to the government's manifesto where they said they would protect standards of farming. We point out that both us uh, on the National Food Strategy and the Trade and Agricultural Commission have made the same recommendation that they need to set out what those standards are and the mechanism for protecting it. And then uh, we note that at the moment, the government seems to be going in the the wrong direction and, and what is particularly worrying about that is that you know the trade and agricultural commission i was amazed by their findings because they have some real kind of uh libertarian free marketeers and even they said uh we need absolutely to protect standards so i think that you know to create this three compartmental model using these incentives you need to get the incentives right you need to have them at the right level to, to so that they are proper incentives for farmers to to farm in this way and you need to get trade right we will definitely return to the trade point later in order to make this model work and achieve some of the other goals in the strategy um you talked about needing big increases in yields on the land which is is kept for farming and i think the strategy mentions a, a 30 percent increase in wheat yields is possible uh, with new crop breeding techniques 
I've been speaking to some farmers this morning who they just don't think this is realistic and that it takes into account land quality. What would you say to them? Well, we, we actually model a 13, 1-3% yield. We, we quote one report that says, you know, with uh, genetic editing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that might get up to 30%. But we think you only need to get a 30, only in inverted commas, need to get a 13% increase. But actually, if you look at the uh, the huge variance in productivity uh, across farming, uh, I think there is a, a massive opportunity. And we say that definitely needs to do much more to be kind of training, helping farmers share best, best practices. All of the kind of innovation money is going into, or the bulk of it at the moment, goes into genomics, goes into science. And actually, we need to be spending much more linking up farmers, helping them uh, share best practice. And the evidence that, that we've seen, there's a lot of evidence to, to suggest that actually if you did that, 13% uh, in yield increases would be possible. Obviously not for some farmers. Some farmers are doing fantastic jobs already. You know, we have in Northumberland, the, the, the farmer, the second highest yield ever in wheat in the world. So uh, it's not, not, it's not going to be possible for everyone, but the, the range of yields makes us believe that that is possible. I want to talk a little bit about diet now. Um, in the report, you called for meat consumption to be cut by 30% over 10 years, as I mentioned in the introduction. And you also talk about the need to reduce dairy consumption, but there isn't a specific target for that as far as I can see. Was was that deliberate? Uh, that that was deliberate because the... So let, let me step back a bit. The reason for the meat reduction was that if you look at... Uh, you know, if your intention is to try to meet your, which, which is the target we sell ourselves, meet the government's statutory goal on net zero by 2050, meet the statutory goal on restoring 30% of our land uh, to nature, so to be wilder, that doesn't mean taking it out of farming altogether, uh, and produced at least the same amount of food from this island. You can do that, but you can only do that if you uh, if you do three things, you reduce food waste, uh, you increase productivity by that thirteen percent, and you use some of the land that is uh, currently used to grow crops for animals or to uh, or to rear animals for other purposes, and so that is where the thirty percent meat comes from, and the dairy because the dairy is much much you know per kilo of protein dairy is uh, massively lower um, carbon footprint that's why we focused uh, on the meat but you know you still have in that model you still have uh, you know 52 percent of our country you know most of our farmland is still uh, is still used in in livestock production so this isn't a radical a radical thing and actually we think that one of the reasons that we are relatively optimistic that it is possible without huge disruption is that 50% of the meat we currently eat is um, is eaten in processed food, in mints, uh, in things. And we think that there's a real opportunity to, to replace that with uh, other forms of protein from vegetables, and we'll come on to alternative proteins as well, but, you know, even just from vegetables, uh, while retaining the kind of things that people really love to eat a good roast chicken or a um a joint of beef 
Mm. Uh, Reading this aspect of the strategy that was talking about cutting meat and dairy consumption, I have to confess it felt quite top down to me. So 98% of UK households still buy milk. 81% of the population think of themselves as meat eaters. Figures from Kansas seem to go even further than that, and they show that 91% of British households purchase red meat. These are popular products. What evidence is there that people actually want to change their diets in the way you're suggesting? Is is this not a case of, well, we know what's best for you, so we're going to decide? I would say it's absolutely the opposite the opposite of top down the approach that we've that we've done so you have to separate two things i think you have to separate uh what what we need to do to meet those goals and then how you need to go about it like what is the best way to go about it so a top down approach would be banning taxing you know i don't know uh, kind of totalitarian measures I, I don't think there is any and i certainly haven't heard anyone uh, and I've, you know, I've offered to talk to the NFU on this. I've kind of, we, we've engaged the kind of top experts across the world. There is no one who has shown me a satisfactory solution to the problem of creating, uh, restoring biodiversity, reducing carbon and feeding ourselves that doesn't require a, a reduction of meat. You know, it's in the CCC's numbers. This, the Mail on Sunday even is campaigning for it. It's, it's, I, I you know, and I'd love to come back on the program and and debate that with someone who thinks they can produce a a, a model that does that. So once you, uh, once you accept that you need that you know something that takes over eighty five percent of our land meat production, uh, the animals we rear for eating are the biomass of those is twenty two times the mass of all wild animals on the planet. Once you accept that that is just a bit too much, a little too much, thirty percent too much. The question is then, how do you go about reducing that? And we went, you know, we had uh, public dialogues and focus groups all around the country uh, on this topic. And what we found is that on the question, again, of whether or not we should reduce meat, there's a pretty sizable majority of people in the country who understand that, um, that this is something we do need to do. When you talk about how to do it, it is a much, much more, uh, there's much more divergence on that than than, than anything else. Um, you know, so for example, the, we'll come on to it, but the sugar and salt reformulation tax actually is popular amongst a majority of people. Uh, there's probably about 50% of people who think there should be some kind of top-down approach on meat, but there is a, a strong uh, minority 30 30 40 percent who feel that even though they need think they need to eat less meat absolutely not the government's job to get involved and we calculated we thought there is no way that any kind of top-down measure would be politically acceptable so the proposal that we had uh, which we think will work although with a complex system you never know so we might have you know might have to come back to it if it's not working is a kind of three-pronged uh, proposal. Uh, the first thing that we propose is you, is you from a, a, a nature perspective, you make the the meat um, less carbon emitting. So you you know look at you, you definitely should invest money in which it's already doing, and we suggest it does more in technologies to reduce to reduce the methane emitted by ruminants. 
The second approach is that this kind of processed meat, uh, you try and tackle that on price. So you create vegetable alternatives uh, that, that, you know, if you have a, a lasagna uh, with mince in it, taking 30% of that mince out and replacing it with a vegetable protein uh, that is cheaper, you actually will get people buying that product out of choice because it's cheaper and it's um, and it's more environmentally friendly. And then the third is that you that you lean into kind of nudging um, people to eat less meat. And you know the supermarkets are already doing that. They found that if you put the vegetarian sausages next to the sausages, people buy m- many more of those. There are various ways in which you can help people who want to eat less meat eat less meat without having to uh, to force them. Um, uh, we also recommend, for example, in schools, the requirement to have meat three times a week should be removed. So it's quite a gentle nudge from the state, an investment in methane suppressing technologies, and a hope that in that processed food, you can replace the protein with other forms of protein cheaper in a way that people won't, uh, won't notice. It's also worth uh, just mentioning that we make a very strong case for the reintroduction of ruminants in regenerative systems. And we have various case studies showing how that is working to, re- to reduce the use of uh, pesticides, um, nitrates, uh, and so forth. But that is, a, 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 you know, the concentration of that, compa- it's, it's, a, it's a tiny number of animals in total compared with the number that we're rearing at the moment. Sticking with me for the time being, I'm sure you'll have seen that since the strategy was published, the NFU have called for a clear distinction to be made between grass-fed British meat and cheap imports. They want British meat to be considered in its own category. Is that something you could support? So I make a very, very strong case that uh, particularly doing, uh, you know, the Australia deal is going to be harmful in itself. And let's you know, let's, let's make no bones about it. Australian beef is high carbon. They're still removing, they're still chopping down forest uh, to, to clear land to grow beef in Australia. Uh, Australian lamb, the, the the ewes are regularly mules, which is, a, in my view, a horrific practice. But actually, the real concerns are Brazil and America, because if you do this, if you do no quota, no tariff deals with Brazil and America, uh, I'm absolutely convinced that the evidence shows that you not only simply export all of the um, all of the uh, environmental and animal welfare harms so that they just don't happen in this country, they happen somewhere else and we just buy in that beef. But at the same time, you destroy huge swathes of, of, of farmers' livelihoods. So uh, absolutely, I think we have some of the highest welfare standards in the world. I've got a table in the in the uh, in the plan that goes into a very high level of detail on the standards of the UK versus Australia versus the US and Brazil, and absolutely, I support that. I think the single most important thing, in, in terms of you know my campaigning on this, uh, trying to get these things landed, I will become very active on trade because I think the whole thing, the whole, it's a kind of extraordinary program that the government's doing on on. Um, environmental land management which could be transformative uh the whole thing falls apart if you don't get the trade deals right and that would be a disaster for everyone who cares whatever you care about whether you care about uh the environment whether you care about climate change whether you care about our rural communities whether you care about our landscapes everything falls apart if you don't get trade right we will come back to this topic i promise you 
Um, one of the ways you've recommended the government move towards cutting meat consumption is by investing £50 million in the development of alternative proteins. I think some farmers would be concerned that in calling for this, you're really advocating shifting the balance of power even further away from small environmentally conscious farms and towards secretive multinational comp- companies who are only interested in, only interested in making massive profits and, and consolidating the food industry. I mean, in the strategy itself, you know, you point to the health benefits and question whether they're really there. You know, it seems strange that in one half of the strategy, you're pushing for a move away from ultra-processed products, but then towards them in another how would you answer those concerns? Well, it's it's really interesting. There are, there are a couple of uh, things that you've that you've raised there. First of all, you raise the kind of one of the central problems of any food strategy, which is that there is no one uh, model that delivers all the benefits. And if you look, for example, at beef, it's a classic example. So, what's the lowest carbon method of producing beef? The lowest carbon method of producing beef is to stock animals very closely together in feedlots to feed them grain to uh, feed them hormones large quantities of antibiotics so they grow very quickly and don't emit methane uh, and then slaughter them Uh, do i think that is a a good production method for um, for beef no i think it is demonstrably less healthy than grass-fed beef i think it is cruel I think it uh, raises huge questions in terms of antimicrobial resistance. And, and also they form a kind of uh, uh, a breeding ground for zoonotic diseases and viruses. So it, in all areas of this strategy, you are forced to think about what is the way to maximize the benefits. It's, it's not there's no one system that delivers everything. And so in terms of processed food, uh, there is a kind of uh, we think you need to do two things. You need to you, you we eat fifty fifty percent of the food we eat is processed versus thirteen percent in Italy. So we have a real processed food problem, and you can't just close your eyes and hope that's going to go away. And we're suddenly all going to eat uh, you know grass fed meat and vegetables overnight. That's not going to happen. So you have to try to make the processed food better. Uh, try and reduce, improve the health of it, which is the reason for the tax, try and uh, reduce the carbon footprint and the land footprint of it, which is the reason for the line on proteins, while creating our kind of fourth objective, a long-term shift in our food culture towards fresh, naturally grown, home-cooked food, which is clearly the kind of where you where you want to get to. And there's a whole bunch, you know, we'll, we'll come on to education and public procurement etc that's helping to drive that local procurement so the question then is so on that these alternative proteins does that lend itself to um huge multinationals and i actually don't think it does and one of the i I think it does if we don't lean into it in this country then it will so we all of that stuff that stuff is going to come and it will be produced by big multinationals at the moment, uh, in Israel, in America, um, Canada, uh, they will export that stuff to us. And I think there is another model of this. There's huge opportunity for British farmers 
There's uh, interesting technologies where you can create alternative proteins at small scale. You could see it happening at farm scale, being done locally. There are feedstocks, oats, uh, for example, which is a great source of, you know, um, some of these alternative products. Uh, so I think, and, and if you look at, uh, there's a fantastic study in, in Argentina, how you get the regulation right. So if you look at, in Argentina, genetically modified uh, innovation versus genetically engineered innovation, they have uh, much, uh, a very different um, process for uh, applications for genetically edited um, products versus GM. And all of the GM food is, all of the GM innovation is controlled by huge multinationals because it's very expensive to do, like drugs, uh, pharmaceuticals, whereas all the GE is, uh, which is lower hoops, there's a huge number of smaller companies um, doing that. And so I think there is a way in which you have a hub because you want to get people able to access the scientists, testing facilities, the government to come and meet them. Uh, but this could easily be a growth opportunity for lots of small businesses with growth, growth opportunities for farmers. And there are already farmers around the country who are, who are thinking about that and trying to do that on their farm. So I think there is a way through. But obviously, as with everything, there, are, there, are, there is jeopardy. So are you proposing that there are safeguards put in place to ensure that investment does only go to smaller businesses? I don't think you, I think you set up the system so that that is the case. And interestingly, um, you know, Ottoline Laser, who is the CEO of UKRI, is completely passionate about this. You know, and she's really, she backs, she's really, really keen on, on our innovation uh, recommendations. She thinks far too much innovation has been done in the food system away from farmers, away from the players, done by multinationals and done by, you know, big corporates. And I think that, um, I, I think that, you know, she will be the person or the UKRI will be the, the, the body that administers this stuff. I think there's a real, I think that there's a real opportunity to set it up so that it doesn't just get captured. The other big recommendation you made on diet was to introduce a £3 per kilogram tax on sugar and a £6 per kilogram tax on salt, sold wholesale for use in processed foods or in restaurants and catering businesses. Would this tax apply to products like cheese, which can sometimes be high in salt? So it applies. To, so let, let me step back again. So the reason that we did this was, first of all, uh, as you'll know, there is we have a huge problem with diet-related disease. Um, we saw it in COVID. You were twice as likely to die from COVID if you were severely obese. But it, that's just the beginning. The, the NHS, people working in the Department of Health are terrified that the NHS is going to collapse. They project that by 2035, the cost of treating diabetes alone will be one and a half times the cost currently of treating all cancers. So there's, real, there's a real problem. The second thing we argue is that the, the typical way of treating this problem is that you um, uh, educate, exercise and rely on willpower. And we show in the junk food cycle in the plan um, that those things scientifically don't work. Exercise is fantastic, doesn't help you lose weight. Uh, some of us are pre genetically predisposed such that it is possible to eat well in our current food environment, but it is incredibly difficult. 
And so you, we argue that you need to make an intervention between the fiscal incentives of companies. You know, companies basically make more money from this stuff, foods high in sugar, salt, fat. And that unless you break that economic feedback loop with our appetites, which are failing in the face of this onslaught, you're not going to succeed in doing anything. And we argue that the, the tax is the best way to do this. Now, this tax is um, paid on wholesale uh, sugar and salt. So high volume wholesale sugar and salt. And it is intended to uh, reformulate. If you look at cheese, so if a, uh, if, a, if a UK cheese manufacturer is buying salt in scale, they will pay the tax. But on the levels that you use the tax uh, in in your products, particularly on salt, it will not be a huge part of the cost. Now, I've got the number. I, I, I know I had the numbers for cheese, but just to give you a sense, a packet of Quavers, which is the number I can remember off the top of my head, uh, uh, which costs 80p, if they did no reformulation, uh, the cost of that packet would go, would the, for them to make, would, would be 0.4p. So it is not huge. But if you're buying, if you are making huge volumes as a multinational of, processed foods and you're buying a thousand tons of salt a year that is six million pounds to your bottom line so we think it will lead to reformulation but i don't think it will be an issue for for british cheesemakers even bacon for example so if you manufacture um uh bacon a kind of a two pound packet of bacon the cost of the additional cost of salt in that bacon would be uh, uh, under a penny, so I don't think it is. Uh, I don't think it is going to be a, a big issue for for farmers or, or producers of value-added farm products. So you've said you're hoping this tax will kickstart reformulation um, a couple of times there, and that that will maybe mitigate the need for price rises. Um, but the British Frozen Food Federation has said its members are dealing with crippling staff shortages and can't shoulder the cost burden of reformulation. Does, does it worry you that this proposal could unwittingly push people even further into food insecurity because these companies just don't have don't have the cash at the moment to to reformulate? Well, it's not going to happen immediately, right? So there'll be a as with the sugary drink tax, there'll be a first of all the government has to decide to do it, so it's not going into law. They might not even do it. When they do, there'll be at least a three year period of consultation, so they have time. But you know what I've what I've learned through this period is that the um uh really interesting over the last two years in the sectors in the farming sector in the retail sector in the wholesale sector in the in the uh, high moving uh, fast moving consumer goods sector the processed food sector time after time i meet really amazing people ceos and people working in this business who know that the sector has to change. The food system is the single biggest uh, cause of the destruction of nature in the world. Alongside energy, it is the single biggest emitter of uh, climate change. And it's the single biggest cause of uh, non-communicable disease. It's what's going to knock the NHS over if we don't solve it. And people in the sectors know that. There's a particularly structural thing about the uh, about membership organizations so whether it's the food and drink federation those kind of things even Manette, who i think is an amazing person 
she is restricted. They are restricted in what they can say because their concern is not those big issues. They are paid to defend their members' interests. And so I think that, you, you know, if you look at people on the ground, they want the government to create the frameworks that enable them to do better things. But, you know, the, the, the federations have a job to do and they do it. But I don't think it's not as if it's, this tax is going to come in in the next six months. So there will be plenty of time to, uh, to think about reformulation. On the subject of staff shortages, this is a topic the strategy does mention, but only briefly and only in the context of formal education. So um, recommending that the food A levels reinstated so the industry will be able to recruit highly skilled workers in the years to come. But given the impact these labour shortages are having now, is it not a bit of a missed opportunity not to make any recommendations on workplace training? I mean, some people have suggested you could have proposed tax breaks for retraining staff. Is that something you considered? So by by its nature, you can't, you know, it, 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 you know it's 288 page report and there are all sorts of things. So, for example, small abattoirs, which is something I feel passionate about because you can't create the regenerative revolution that we need unless you reintroduce small abattoirs. I put in as a footnote on one of the pages, so I kind of clocked it, but there were limited things that you can do and the 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 calculation i made rightly or wrongly i could be criticized for this is that there was enough focus on that particular issue so defra is very aware of it you know we're facing it in hospitality as well because of covid and the you know we, we've got the kind of triple whammy and i'm sure that a lot of farmers have this which is uh you know i'm involved in a hospitality business down in the southwest and we have the people who've gone home during COVID to Europe and aren't coming back. We have people who are self-isolating. It's an absolute nightmare. We have, um, and then on top of that, we in the Southwest, all of the university kids used to come down and spend their summer holidays uh, working in our businesses. And they are, um, they don't want to work this summer because they've been locked up for, for a long time. And so we've got unprecedented demand and no labor and it's a nightmare. But I just took had to take the view on some of these things i couldn't try and solve every problem that was happening now i had to try and solve the things that i thought were big strategic issues that were unlikely to get resolved without significant um kind of a significant manifesto and recommendations so that's why i didn't kind of go very strongly into that space and as uh, you know i said that might be a you know that might i might have on some of those things I won't have got it right but that's that's the reason that I did it yeah I mean do you not think that it might have helped the cause if you'd have mentioned something about putting HGV drivers or butchers onto the shortage occupation list because you'll be fully aware of the massive problems that these staff shortages are causing and it's huge for the industry did you is that just the same reason you just didn't want to get involved in that because there wasn't the yeah, there was, there was, they were just like there were you know there are probably 50 literally 50 things like that that from various parts of the food system that we didn't put in and uh, you know maybe i should have had a list of them at the end other recommendations with them in uh, you know but that's why would it be possible to to get a copy of those 50 things yeah, I could. Well, they're in about five different documents. I very happily share them with Perfect. you. Perfect. Thank you. Um, just before we leave education and training, um, there's a lot of talk about improving food education in schools in the strategy. But didn't really mention making children aware of the farm to fork journey and actually getting kids out on farm. 
what do you think schools should be doing to teach children about food production, not just nutrition? So um, I, this is an area that I'm particularly passionate about uh, because after doing the school food plan in 2013, the um, the teacher in my kids' state primary school, the, 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 sorry, the, the cook in my kids' state primary school uh, in Hackney left and through a series of bizarre coincidences, we happened to hire an amazing woman called Nicole Pisani, who's who was at that time at Ottolenghi's high-end restaurant, Nopi. And through a lot of trial and a lot of error, we managed to turn around the food education, the food at that school. And then we set up a, a charity called Chefs in Schools that, um, uh, that taught uh that just transformed the the food and the and the cooking lessons in 50 schools now um in london and we're about to expand outside and you're absolutely right so the secret to if if we're going to change our long-term food culture is not about it's not about knowledge it's not about teaching people about nutrition it's about visceral experience. It's about engaging um, taste, eyesight, smell, touch, the imagination. It's about, you know, getting children to farms, getting children growing their own food. Um, we do butchery of, uh, of chickens with, with kids in reception. The head teacher thought we were insane. Um, uh, we have fire pits. We take kids to farms. And I think that that, that visceral understanding of where food comes from, how food is grown, the, the pleasure, you know, seeing how many more vegetables children will eat if they've grown them themselves, how much more risk they will take. Um, you know, I would love every Prince Charles, when we did the school food plan, um, I met him afterwards uh, and he said he wanted to get a farm in every school. And I think that would be an absolutely wonderful thing to do. So I I'm absolutely believe that it's about the experience of things and the imagination and not learning what proportion of carbohydrates, protein um, and vegetables you should have on a plate. How do we actually make that happen, though? Well, so the, recommend, I, I, the recommendation, so we made a bunch of recommendations on that, but I actually think the most powerful one is to uh, to make all schools work with an accreditation body which does both accreditation says how good your cooking and your nutrition and food education is but also training of teachers and like introducing curriculum and there are a number out there um you know uh food for life do it chefs in schools do it there are a bunch of things that do it and I think that will make a great change. I'd love to see. I don't, maybe there is one, but you know, is there a, you know, a farmer's version of that that could kind of create farm schools and could be, you know, the idea is that the government says yes. You know, it says here are the organisations that are that we've said you can choose as a school, and then the schools choose. And I think actually having that, you know, you can't pass a law to make food good in schools. You can't send in the army. It requires leaders to want to make a change, but then it requires people to help them turn that inspiration and uh desire into something practical so i think that kind of the those accreditation and training bodies are actually the 
sounds like kind of a bit wonkish as a recommendation, but I think it'll be really powerful if it's put into place. A call to arms for any listened, listen, interested listeners there. Um, on trade, this is the last topic we're going to cover. You recommended that the government define minimum standards for food imports and a mechanism for protecting those standards. You've already talked about the Australia deal. In the strategy, it says there's an animal welfare chapter in that agreement, which is described as a, a world first. Did you ask to see that chapter to discuss it in the strategy? Yes. And presumably you were told no. It was still being discussed. Right. So it's not finished yet. Not as far as I'm aware. I have not seen it. Okay. I mean, does it fill you with confidence that even you weren't allowed to see it, even if it was in draft form? No. (laughs) Very blunt answer there. Um, You also discussed the government's failure to adopt recommendations on trade from part one of the food strategy. Um, such as only allowing tariff-free access for imports which meet UK standards and providing space for proper parliamentary scrutiny of trade deals. Why do you think the government hasn't adopted those recommendations and what hope does that give you that they will adopt the measures you've proposed on trade in part two? It's not just us, it's the Trade and Agricultural Commission. And in fact, it's even more surprising for the Trade and Agricultural Commission because, you know, I was one independent person it was my view that was a group of people which included um you know as well as the farming unions some really noted free marketeers like shank singham and um i think there is basically that there is not a you know we i talk about how the the big issues in the food system are not about join up in government, but I think that fundamentally the government hasn't yet resolved how it is going to honour that um that that manifesto pledge. And um I think that's a real problem. Um one final question about the uplands before I let you go. Um these areas do tend to be some of the least productive and you've identified them in the strategy as providing providing bountiful opportunities for carbon sequestration through rewetting peat bogs and growing trees and shrubs. I suppose my question to you here is twofold. How would you prevent a terrible loss of culture like hefting, for example, if you're encouraging upland farmers to destock, 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 and there's a fire risk there too when hills become undergrazed? And did you um, consider that not all upland farmers necessarily want to stop farming animals and start farming beauty, as the former DG of the National Trust, Dame Helen Ghosh, once put it? It's not about not farming animals completely. We we include a quote uh, from James Rebanks, Rebanks in the uh, in the thing in in the strategy, and. Um, If you will bear with me, I might read you a little bit of it because I think it's a beautiful vision for the future of the uplands. He says, as we travel into the valley bottom, I see around me on all sides an ancient working landscape that still lives and breathes, but also with 20 years of changes written across its surface. I see ancient woodland above us trying to regenerate. Little mountain ash trees are sprouting up all over the wilding fell, trying to beat the deer. The vegetation is growing denser and deeper, with alder and thorny scrub creeping up the gills. The floodplain is half abandoned and half wild. 
The valley has the valley has become much shaggier and wilder than it ever was in my childhood, with far fewer sheep dotted around. Some of my neighbours are confused or angry about that, while others are adapting, keeping more cattle or finding other ways to earn a living from the land. I see farmers starting to work together to make this place even better, finding ways to farm around wilder rivers. Miles of hedges are being laid once more, dry stone walls rebuilt and old stone barns and field houses restored. I see river corridors fenced off and ponds dug. The blanket peat bog on our common land has been restored. Wildflower meadows, liberated from artificial fertilizers and pesticides, are now shimmering with clouds of insects, butterflies, moths and birds. There is a love of this place that unites us all. And I think that is a, a powerful vision for how you can have an uplands that brings together nature and farming and communities and beauty and carbon sequestration. It's a very powerful vision, but in practice, the kind of government schemes that have been put in place, the agro-environmental schemes that have been put in place in the uplands have tended to focus on destocking and, as I say, potentially creating fire risks when hills become undergrazed and farmers feel very done too they don't feel as though they've been a part of this process it feels as though it's just being imposed upon them so how do you get that balance right between making sure that nature is protected but also protecting the culture and the communities that live in the uplands well the 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 vision for elms or the subsidies for elms haven't been published yet and we make a, a very strong argument that a third of a third of that money, about five hundred, seven hundred million pounds, should go into this twenty percent of our land that has the potential to be um, turned into these beautiful landscapes that sequester carbon, restore biodiversity, and produce food. And that is the recommendation in the plan. That's how you do it. You do it by getting the incentives right and by uh, getting your trade deals right. So all farmers in the uplands, if they want to continue farming, they will be able to do that. Well, the incentives will incent them to do that. That's the idea. Right. That is the last question that I had for you, Henry. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time there. I know that we have run over quite significantly. Not at all. It's a it's a real privilege to be able to speak to um speak to you and I have to say that you know anyone who does work on the food system you're not going to get someone who knows from the outset all parts of the food system and farming when I started has been the area that I knew least about and the generosity of farmers showing me around their farms talking to me reading the recommendations rereading them making suggestions there's probably a core of 20 farmers who've really helped and then a huge number of others who've inputted and i've been i'm very very uh, grateful um for for their help and then people like james rebanks who i've uh who i've read you know, there's a lot of reading as well um about farmers which has also been an inspiration so um i think there's a real positive potential future for farming in this country but i think it's a scary time and there are some big decisions that need to be made and thank you to our listeners we hope you enjoyed the show we will, of course, be back soon with more. But in the meantime, why not subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes of Over the Farm Gate? 
Until next week, from us at FG, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well. Goodbye for now. Bye.